Well, welcome to Grace Wave Baptist Church. This is our Sunday School lesson. We're going to present this on March 27th of 2022. And we have started a series where we're looking at some of the miracles of the Lord Jesus. So I'd invite you to um, get your Bible out and turn to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. And um, we're going to look at verses 46 through 53. This is about the healing of the nobleman's son. And uh, in these miracles we're going to look at, we see some things about Jesus and we see some things about ourselves. We see some uh, practical principles, things that we need to know, things we need to learn. That's why they are recorded, of course. And um, we also will see some uh, pictures from time to time in these because these were actually signs and wonders the Bible may call them. In the book of John, the word sign is a big, big word for him. And um, so anyway, with uh, that being said, let's, let's go to the fourth chapter of John and let's go ahead and go down to verse 46. And I hope you will join me as I read along and look at your own copy of God's word and make sure you're very familiar with the uh, text of scripture um, especially for those of you who are going to teach this. That's the most important thing, not to know my words, but to know his words. John 4, 46. So Jesus came again, that's interesting, to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. We looked at that last week. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We can understand that. Any loving father would want to do that to save his son. But I also think, too, that we don't want to miss the idea this was a nobleman. This is somebody who had a, had a title. Now, not just a title like Mr. or Mrs., but uh, more like we would think of uh, a royal title, um, a duke or an earl or something like that. They didn't uh, have that in, in Roman and Jewish society, of course, but it would be very, very similar to that. And so the idea there is this is his son, probably the son that is going to inherit whatever the nobleman has, inherit his title, inherit his land, inherit his money, inherit his position. Uh, very important for people like that to have an heir. Well, his heir is getting ready to die. How will his dynasty live on? And so he's at the point of death. So there was uh, something about this that kind of gives us this, this feeling of uh, the importance that this was to the nobleman. And we'll look at the unusual aspect of this in just a moment. Verse 48, let's pick up again in our text. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people, and notice people there is in italics, it's not in the original language, unless you see signs and wonders, there's that phrase, you will by no means believe. Verse 49, 
The nobleman said to him, I mean, you can feel him getting a little bit more desperate because Jesus doesn't seem to be terribly willing to do anything. Kind of like when he turned the water into wine, he's like he's throwing up a barrier before he does this. So the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Got that exclamation point after that. So he's really getting desperate and uh, pretty intense as he speaks. And the response of Jesus in verse 50 is a little bit curious. Jesus said to him, go your way. Now, if that's all he said, how cruel, how cold, how hard hearted could anyone be? But he says more, go your way. Your son lives. Now, we didn't expect to hear that, did we? So the nobleman believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And what is the result? He went his way. And as he was now going down, look at how good God is. His servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. And again, exclamation point. They're enthusiastic. This is amazing. This is an incredible thing, an unexpected thing. Verse 52. Then he inquired of them the hour when he, the son, got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. Now, that's the second time we've seen this. Um, I wonder if there's any difference in the quality of his belief, the intensity of his belief uh, this second time. And he himself believed and his whole household. So here's the, the story. Jesus comes back to Cana of Galilee, okay, this insignificant town in this insignificant part of Judea, uh, pardon me, Galilee. And he is returning, of course, the scripture tells us, from Judea. And so once again, we find this emphasis where Jesus comes to this unexpected, uh, kind of a relatively unknown, at least let's call it an unimportant place, Cana, you know, what's Cana of Galilee? What's, what's Galilee? And then something like this, uh, happens at that particular place. Now we want to emphasize the word returns. Point number one, Jesus returns to Cana. And when we look at the text, specifically verse 46, Jesus came and it says again to Cana, tying it together with the um, water turning into wine, where uh, he had made the water wine. Very, very, very specific about all of that. Now, why did he have to return? Well, Jesus had been to Jerusalem for the Passover. John chapter four, verse 45, it says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done <clears throat> in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So remember at Passover, that's when everybody is required to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not in Galilee. Jerusalem is in Judea. It's a difficult trip 
to get uh, from Galilee to Judea. And there aren't many well-to-do people in Galilee. They're typically working class, common uh, people and some lower class, of course. And so uh, they're probably going to go to Jerusalem on foot. It's a long way. Takes a while to get there. You have to plan to get there. It's a tiring and it's also a dangerous journey. There were thieves along the way that would uh, rob people. So they tended to travel in groups for safety, of course. And then we have the Samaritan issue that uh, any self-respecting Jew is not going to walk through the territory of the Samaritans. They're going to go around that, even though it's going to take them longer. That's just the typical way that they would go. And so uh, all of these people are down there. Now, when the Galileans get to um, Judea, uh, those of you, if you're old enough to remember, think of the the scene in the Beverly Hillbillies introduction where uh, the Clampets are driving down in their old car in Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive. And that's kind of the way it was whenever the Galileans came to Jerusalem. The, the Clampets are coming to town, the Beverly Hillbillies type of thing. They didn't fit in. Their language was the same, but it was different. They, they had a weird accent. They were not as educated. They didn't use sophisticated terms. They didn't use uh, good grammar whenever they came there. And uh, so it was, uh, they, they didn't fit in. They didn't fit in is, is what we're really trying to say. They stuck out like a sore thumb whenever they were in Judea. Judea is a place of education, of wealth, of high society, of uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and especially the uh, Sadducees, uh, all of that kind of stuff. It's the bigger city, the capital city, uh, none, none of, n- nothing like Galilee. And so when all of these Galileans came to town, you can just imagine the people in Judea, the people in Jerusalem, kind of turning up their noses and making fun of them and uh, taking advantage of them when they were there. A lot of things like that would go on. So uh, there was kind of a um, class envy, maybe we might say, Uh, between the Galileans and the Judeans. And you'll find as you read through the Bible that this distinction between the two is drawn out very clearly. And if we could live back in those days, we not only would travel from Galilee to Judea as a group for safety, but we might even travel that way and hang out that way just because We didn't feel really welcome at the temple. We didn't feel really welcome in the businesses and in the streets and in the uh, inns and all of those places like that in Jerusalem. We just didn't quite fit in. And there would be people there again to take advantage of you. When we find Jesus doing things like cleansing the temple, uh, you remember that what was going on there is you had to have certain animals that were approved by the rabbis for the sacrifices at the temple. Well, the system there had become so corrupt that virtually no one could bring an animal to the temple and have that animal approved, especially if you were from out of town. 
And by out of town, I mean especially if you were from Galilee. If you were from Galilee and you brought your best lamb and that lamb were able to survive the trip, and, and that could be iffy. Anything could happen trying to take an animal that distance. But let's say you did get to Jerusalem and you've got your prize lamb there, and then you take it to the temple and there's got to be an inspection. Well, this system was so corrupt, you were almost never going to have an approved animal. I'm sorry, you can't offer that animal. Not here, sir. We found a, a blemish. We found something wrong with it. However, for your convenience, we just happen to have all of these animals that have been certified by the rabbis and uh, the priests, and they are ready for sacrifice. And you're free to purchase them. Well, how much are they? And they would charge exorbitant prices for them because, well, you were stuck. You didn't have any choice in the matter. Not to mention, when you pulled out your money, maybe you had a little money bag and you pulled it out and you started taking your coins out, most likely the coins that you used were coins for the Roman Empire. Whose image was on the coins that were used throughout the Roman Empire, of which Israel, Galilee, and Judea were both a part of? Well, it would have the image of Caesar. And when you pulled that out to buy one of these high-priced lambs at the temple, there would be shock, disgust, and horror that you would bring the image of anyone, much less the image of a Gentile king, the oppressor, into uh, that holy place. And they would say, we can't even have anything to do with that. We're appalled and shocked that you would bring that kind of money here. However, we happen to have some people over here that will exchange that into Israeli money, shekels. Well, what's the exchange rate? And again, they would charge exorbitant prices. So what they were doing is taking advantage of these Galileans in particular, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of people who had no other resources. And if they were doing that, let's just say this, if they were doing that in the temple, what do you think they were doing at the inn where the Galileans might stay? What do you think they were doing whenever they would try to purchase food or anything else um, that they needed. And so uh, this is all the kind of thing that was going on. And so the Galileans didn't really care much for the Judeans, and the Judeans didn't really care much for the Galileans. What was Jesus? Well, Jesus was interesting because he was actually born in Judea, in the city of David. But you remember whenever... They had to flee to Egypt. When they came back after Herod the Great died, you remember that Joseph started to settle in Judea. After all, that's kind of where he was originally from. That's where his family lived in Bethlehem, the city of David. But because of who had taken Herod the Great's place, he decided it was better to go up to Galilee. And so he, Jesus is raised in uh, Galilee, in the city of Nazareth. 
And so the Galileans embraced Jesus as one of their own. He dressed like them. He lived like them. He had their accent. And so uh, when he was doing things in Gal- uh, pardon me, in Judea, he got a lot of attention, particularly from the Galileans. I think about what it must have been like whenever Jesus, the Galilean, is able to go toe-to-toe with the Judean Pharisees, the arrogant, aristocratic, well-educated people, and Jesus goes toe-to-toe with them and wins. Can you imagine the Galileans would let up a cheer when that kind of thing would happen? Whenever they would look and they would see that this Galilean seems to have the blessing of God upon him to where he can do supernatural things that no one else can do. Even Nicodemus, the Judean Pharisee, said, we know that you are sent from God because no one else could do this. Man, that made the Galileans just soar. And so they were in tune with what Jesus had done. And the Bible says that they had been to the feast too because they were required to go there. And they saw all of the things that uh, Jesus had done while he was there. And he had several significant experiences back when he was in uh, between the turning of the water into wine and this particular uh, miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son. And uh, the Bible says, let me get my uh, Kindle. It just decided to go to sleep on me. It says that uh, several things happened there that we might not kind of put in chronology. The first cleansing of the temple, Jesus was irate and incensed at what he saw that I just described in a little bit of detail. But also, you remember it was in John 3 that he met with Nicodemus. I think a lot of people think that took place later on in his ministry. Now, that was right up front. Nicodemus became a secret disciple and follower of Jesus in the third chapter of the book of John. It was also between the turning of water to wine and the healing of the nobleman that John the Baptist presents Jesus to his disciples. It was also in between on this trip that Jesus, not following conventional wisdom and going around Samaria, he goes right through it. And what does he do? He meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well in uh, Sychar. And so his fellow Galileans had seen and heard Jesus in Judea because they were there and they had seen all of that. Now, point number two, a nobleman heard of Jesus' power. Now, we don't know how he heard, and we don't really know a whole lot about him, but it does tell us there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, and when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee because there was a lot of talk there and all the Galileans were talking and buzzing about what Jesus had done when he was in uh, Jerusalem, especially probably the cleansing of the temple. So this nobleman goes to him and says, come down and heal my son. He's at the point of death. Now the word nobleman 
is a form of the Greek word for king, basileia. And uh, so he was of some type of royal blood and related to uh, the nobility there. Some believe that he was even a, a quote unquote minor king there. There were different levels of that uh, that were allowed by the Romans. And most believe that he served as a part of King Herod's court. And that would be um, not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is dead, but Herod Antipas. And he is the one who killed John the Baptist. So, you know, this is um, an amazing thing. This, this nobleman that is in the court of the king, who's not afraid to take on a recognized prophet like John, he's coming now to uh, see Jesus. Now, that is, and we made reference to this when we first read the text, that was something that was unimaginable and unthinkable, that a member of Herod's court would go to a village carpenter, that's all I thought Jesus was, to a village carpenter for anything. This is a tremendous, tremendous breach of protocol. This is a tremendous step down for a nobleman, a minor king, to go to a carpenter and ask for help. But what's a father to do? He's more of a father than he is a king or a nobleman. He loves his son. He wants the son, the heir, to live, to carry on the title. And this is threatened. And so he's heard some things from his servants and from other people about this Jesus. And he's back in Galilee, so he thinks it's, it's worth a try. It's worth a try to go and to see him. That would be shocking to everybody. See, we don't think in terms like that because we don't have those type of classes in our own nation, not to the degree that they did. But all of the Galileans would have been shocked to see this nobleman show up. But I'll tell you something else. If any of uh, the Judean aristocracy heard about this, they probably would have been even more shocked and stunned that this nobleman would disgrace himself to this degree. Okay, number three. His belief was at the most basic level. And that's why Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. Now, there's some level of belief, some level of, of faith here. I mean, it was undeniable that Jesus had done miracles. It's undeniable that there was uh, something to all of this. And it might be kind of on the level. Maybe you've heard of somebody that they went to Mexico to try a certain experimental treatment for cancer because there had been some people that got success from it. It's not mainstream. It's not something they really believe in. But because of their desperation, they've got to go give it a try. Or maybe it's some... Um, type of holistic medicine or something. And, and maybe their doctor doesn't have much faith in it, but uh, some people do, and it's worth a try. Or maybe it's like the person who, um, uh, they don't really necessarily believe in, in magic or anything like that. They're a complete secularist. 
but uh, they're, they're needing some answers about something and somebody says, hey, uh, have you ever thought of tarot cards? Have you ever thought of an Ouija board or uh, seeing a, a medium, a psychic or something like that? Uh, it's kind of along that level, I think, that the nobleman is going to Jesus and he, he thinks it's worth a try, but I don't think that it is saving faith. Now, the people, including the nobleman here, could not deny his miracles, but I think it was more of a shallow, superstitious type of belief, a medicine man, a shaman, uh, you know, somebody like that. And uh, so it's, it's worth a try. Now, number four, notice that his belief advanced when he believed Jesus' word. Now, I think it is significant. So when it says, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And something amazing happens when the nobleman believes the word of Jesus. And what is it? Verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, when we talk about belief, there's something different about a person who, if you say, do you believe in God? Yes, I, I, I believe in God, but they don't believe what the Bible says. They don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They don't believe what the Bible says about creation. They don't believe what the Bible says about salvation and redemption, that type of thing. Then that tells you this is a person with a, a superficial belief in God. We've all met and known, maybe you used to be a person like that. Well, that's kind of what we find here. There's something to this Jesus, but... You know, as to really believe anything about him, uh, you know, not, not, I don't really know. It sounds kind of sketchy, but something happened when the nobleman, this is what the text, this is what John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings out that he believed his word, believed his word. Uh, something changed in all of that because belief in the word of Jesus will always result in obedience. We're told in the New Testament, we're not to be hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. And there's something about faith and obedience that go together. The book of James, he makes great pains to say, you know, you say you have faith. Great. Show me because faith without works is dead. And so there are a lot of people that claim to be uh, people of faith, that's kind of a popular term right now. Are you a person of faith? Um, I assume you're a person of faith. I had someone say that to me not too long ago. Well, faith is not simply what you say. Faith is not simply uh, ascribing to a set of doctrines or something like that. That's part of it. But it's also seen in obedience. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? You know, that's a good question for you. That's a good question for me. That's a good question for all of us who claim to be Christians. Are we obedient? What right do we have to think that we're going to die and go to heaven if we're not obedient? That's 
all through the scripture. And so um, this is something that the nobleman believed his word. And what did he do? He didn't argue. He didn't ask for greater clarification or anything like that. What did he do? He simply started going home. Jesus said, your child lives, go your way. The nobleman said, I believe that. And he started walking home. And then he met the servants and then they told him that his son was alive. But he believed first, he obeyed second, and he got the confirmation after that. Now that's backwards from what a lot of people try to do. A lot of people try to find confirmation before they ever obey. That's not the walk of faith. And for a lot of people, they want to look at the Word of God, analyze it, and then consider whether they're going to obey or not. And so they look and they see what the Bible says. For example, um, let's just look at at this uh, about giving. And a lot of people, instead of saying, God said it, that settles it, I'm going to do it, okay? What do they do? They look at it, then they get out a calculator and they get out their checkbook and they look at their budget to see if they can do what God has commanded them to do. And then they decide, yeah, I can do that. Or they may decide, nope, that's not going to work. Both of those are sinful, even if they end up giving to the Lord, but because they did it not out of faith, but they did it because they decided that they could do it. Listen, to look at the word of God and then to study it so that you will consider whether or not you're going to obey it, you've already disobeyed, haven't you? That's not the walk of faith. And uh, boy, thankfully, that's not what the nobleman did. And... um, We also see that others will look at the word of God to see how much they will obey. You know, when I look at this and I see, you know, what I'm supposed to do, well, I'm not sure I can do that, but I can do some. I'll meet you halfway, God. I'll meet you three-fourths of the way, Lord. Uh, That's not what he calls for. He calls for us to obey him and to obey him completely. See, this nobleman really does challenge our religion and challenge our faith. How obedient to the Lord and to his word are you? You say, well, I don't ever see God do any miracles for me. Um, Take a look at this text and maybe you could find the reason why. We also need to see that some people look at the word and they study it and they study it hard, but they're looking at it with a skeptic's eye trying to discredit it. A lot of liberals who do not believe in the deity of Christ and they do not believe in the resurrection, they do not believe in the miracles of Christ, they do not believe in the sinfulness of man or any of that kind of stuff, but they know the word of God as well, maybe even better than you and I know it. They spent their life doing it, but it's all with an eye to discredit it, not to believe it. So which person are you? Are you like the nobleman or are you like the person that says, you know, I'll meet you halfway. God will compromise on this. Are you the person who wants to discredit the word of God? That can't possibly be true. How in the world science disproves that and all of that. 
Are you a person who looks and you, you kind of are essentially a person of goodwill, but you're not quite to the point of obeying the Lord and his word. And so you look to see um, if you can obey or not. Or are you like the nobleman who just simply takes Jesus at his word and finds out something wonderful? You see, the Bible says that the word of God is alive and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 is familiar to you. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. That's called precision, folks. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, which is exactly why people hate the Bible. It's alive, it's powerful, and it's piercing. Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing no surprise there, but this might surprise some people, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, whenever a lost person hears the word of God, no matter what it is, it's never in vain because faith comes by hearing the word of God. And that's what happened to this nobleman. He heard the word of Jesus, and what happened? The Holy Spirit brought him, gave him faith. So our conclusion is to Sum it up with this, just like the Bible does. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Now, we might have understood this if the nobleman got the word from his servants and then he said, OK, well, now I'll go home. But that's not what happened. He started heading home first. Then he got the confirmation. He obeyed what Jesus commanded him to do. And then the confirmation came. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the way it works so often in our lives. We obey the word of God and we get the confirmation of it later on. He himself believed, oh, look at this, and his whole household, his servants, and all of the people in his house, they believed as well. And so notice the progression. First of all, we find this man, he believed the works of Jesus. There are a lot of people who kind of, sort of, you know, believe in that. And then secondly, he believed in the words of Jesus, right? And then he received the witness about Jesus. I worded that differently in the Sunday school lesson book, but I like this better. He believed thirdly in the witness about Jesus. And who is it that witnesses about Jesus? You got it. It's the Holy Spirit of God and the prophets of God who wrote the word of God. And those two things are what brings us to the place of trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So a nobleman gets more than a, a son who gets well. He gets saved. And we see through all of this as Jesus is proclaiming himself and testifying of himself among these Galileans who had seen him do things that were unthinkable in Judea. Now he works a miracle for, of all people, a nobleman that the Jewish people probably would have considered to be an enemy and uh, some type of a puppet of Rome. And uh, what does Jesus do? He does something that astounds and amazes all of them, just as he will do today through the proclamation of the gospel 
the Word of God. So learn the Word, read the Word, study the Word, share the Word. God does wonderful things through the Word, and you might find that your own faith increases as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you for watching this video or listening to the audio if you're a teacher. And may the Lord bless you, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.